Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. Today it's my pleasure to have Gina Miller, VP of Media and Communications at FC Dallas and a trailblazer in the sports and broadcasting space. She's going to share a ton of information on her career story being the only woman in many markets across the country featuring sports and what she's learned in her path along the way. Join us. Let's talk to Gina. Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC DLC Drop Drop Podcast. Podcast. All right, welcome to another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. Gina Miller, VP of Media and Communications at FC Dallas and a longtime broadcaster. Thank you for joining the episode. Thank you for having me. It's good to be in here. This is fabulous. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's the team behind, behind the scenes and they do a great job here. And, you know, the reason why we wanted to have this quality is for people like you, you know, to have an interest in joining the podcast. And so I've heard your story a number of times. I've heard it at Dice where we're both members. I've heard it at Steady Adventures, but I want to share with our audience, you have this unique experience being a trailblazer in the industry, specifically in sports. You've been a woman who is the only woman in a market where there's one job available, <laughs> probably the only per, only, only female in a locker room a lot of times <laughs> yeah. or some interesting experiences. I love for you to share that and let's walk through this uh, and share these insights that you've learned through this amazing journey of yours. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I was a sportscaster my entire career before going to the dark side is what they call it when you go from journalism and working in newsrooms to going on to the PR side. But I still think of myself as a journalist and okay. a storyteller because from a brand perspective, and you can certainly appreciate this, all we do is tell stories, whether it's the story of a product, right. the story of an athlete or a CEO or executive, truly just a storyteller. And and I tell our story at FC Dallas through earned media media placements, owned media, digital, social, and broadcast media, as well as to our stakeholders internally at FC Dallas. But literally, I'm a Dallas native. And from the time I was about 14 years old, I wanted to be a sportscaster. I saw Bob Ortigal doing Mavericks games with Alan Stone, Jim Durham, and then later with Mark Folliwell. I ended up working with Bob Ortigal and Mark Folliwell, but saw Bob doing Mavericks games. And I thought, that's pretty cool. I can talk basketball for a living. I played basketball. I can I can do this. I can talk basketball for a living. And at the time, you know, this was long enough ago to where there were not a lot of women talking sure. talking sports on TV. Right. And, and there weren't a lot of women's sports being broadcast on TV. Now you see a lot more gender equality in terms of women talking sports, talking men's sports, talking women's sports. Yeah. You just see that. But this was the early 90s, okay. late 80s, actually, early 90s. And that didn't exist. So I really didn't have anyone to model or or, or aspire to be as a 14-year-old. And, mm-hmm. and I didn't even think about that. You don't know what you don't know as a young teenager. And I just thought it was going to be easy. You know, I'd go apply for a job and I'd get it. Turns out yeah. everybody wants to talk sports on TV. <laughs> and I ended up going to University of Houston. And my parents didn't want me to do it. My friends laughed at me because I wasn't well-connected. I didn't mm. know anyone in the business. I didn't have an uncle who played or, you know, served as a coach for a team. I had none of those connections. And so I ended up going to University of Houston and because they paid me, not for any other reason, but they just paid me to go to school there. I got a few scholarships to go there. And uh, in a roundabout way, I ended up interning for the Houston Rockets. Mm. And it was the most serendipitous event of my entire life because I was a media relations intern and didn't want to go into media relations. But I knew somehow I knew that if I worked in the media department, I'd get to meet 
all the media people in the Houston market, which was the 11th largest media market at the time. They still had the Oilers, had the Astros, had the Rockets, who just won an NBA championship. And I thought, God, this would be pretty cool. So I was an intern for the Rockets, the 94-95 season, ended up winning another NBA championship. I won a championship ring. It was amazing. I was an intern who got a ring. It was so cool. And I ended up meeting all these media people because... NBC, this is when NBC had the had the NBA package. NBC Sports was there doing games. TNT, TBS. Wow. I mean, everyone was there. So I really got a lot of access and a lot of introduction to key influencers and media executives. Partly that internship into a job as a sports producer at KHOU in Houston, writing, editing, stacking shows, doing all the things. Graduated college. The one place that offered me a job was KUAM TV in Guam, where I was the sports director of KUAM in how Guam. Far is, how far is Houston from Guam? Oh my gosh. I mean, I know you got to fly to LA. This is my flight path LA, then to Hawaii, yeah. and then another about five to eight hours. I can't quite recall. It is below Japan and above Australia. It's a flight. Okay. It's past the international dateline. It is where America's Day begins because Guam is a U.S. territory. I do know that. So it's, it's that's all I know yeah, about. Yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's where it's where the sun rises on the U.S. So we used to say half a day Guam. Hello. That's yeah. that's the tomorrow greeting. And I was Gina Miller, and I hosted the Miller Light Sports page. There you go. On Guam, everybody thought I was part of the Miller Dynasty. So everywhere I went, I had a Miller beer sitting right in front of me. <laughs> everywhere hey, I went on the island, use everything you can. Right. It was fun. It was fun. It was a little too much fun. I was only there for about six months. Moved back home to the States. Got a job at uh, WBIR in Knoxville, Tennessee, where I was a sports reporter, sports anchor, sports photographer, and sports producer. Only female in the market at the time. First female sports director in Guam's history. First female to do sports in Guam. Only first female to do sports full-time on TV Mm. in Knoxville as well. But, I mean, talk about glory days. I was there during Peyton Manning's last year, covered him with the Vols, covered Tennessee's national championship the subsequent year, and covered the Lady Vols and the late great Pat Summit, coaching the University of Tennessee women's basketball team. It was amazing, an amazing time. One, moved back home, be near my family. I'd lost my grandfather while I was working in Knoxville. Moved back home, got a job with the Dallas Cowboys, and the Cowboys were just so forward and and progressive at the time. They had two women working in their TV department, a photographer (laughs) who's still there, Roxanne Medina, who I'm still very good friends with, and me working as a reporter and producer. So I was there for three seasons, Chan Gailey and two straight 5-11 and Dave Campo years, who I love. I love Dave. We're still friends. But Really, I wanted to cover everything. I mean, yeah. I just, I mean, I grew up in Dallas and, you know, I grew up with a poster of the Doomsday Defense to the right side of my bed. To the left of that poster, I had a James Donaldson poster, the former Dallas Maverick Center, yeah. who, to which I measured my height against James <laughs> Donaldson. You know, I'm pretty tall. I'm about six feet tall, but I used to stand and mark myself against James Donaldson growing up. And I really wanted to cover everything. I just yeah. wanted that experience. And so I was able to parlay the experience with the Cowboys into a job at WFA in Dallas as a sports reporter. Three years there, parlayed that into a position that was really a life-changing role uh, at CBS 11 and TXA 21, the duopoly Mm. here in Dallas-Fort Worth, where um, I hosted the fan sports show, but also had the opportunity to host Dallas Mavericks, Dallas Stars, Texas Rangers, and Dallas Cowboys pre- and post-game shows. Wow. Ended up working with Randy White. I grew up waking up to him every morning, but I hosted Cowboys game day with Randy White for eight years. It was amazing. It was amazing. Hosted games with Derek Harper. I mean, I grew up watching him. I mean, truly Amazing stuff. I was there for eight years, left CBS in 2013, and ended up working at KCBS KCAL in Los Angeles, another duopoly, 
yep. uh, hosting Sports Central in L.A. where it was just, I underestimated what a great sports town L.A. was. I mean, it was right. just, it was it's amazing. It's overshadowed at times. It does yeah. because of the Hollywood scenery and, and everything that you see out there and just how beautiful it is. But it's a great sports town. Yep. Covered the Lakers, covered the Dodgers, Angels. I mean, the Clippers during the Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan drama. Uh, Love City. I mean, it was, yeah, it was great. It was yeah. great. Um, it was so much fun, but I was commuting back and forth between LA and Dallas, which was tough. So moved back home, more family decisions. And I was a media consultant for a while where I learned more about the media industry than I ever did. I, I went into local newsrooms across the country and coached news directors and GMs on news strategy, urgent language, talent coaching, all sorts of things. And then FC yeah. Dallas approached me the opportunity to to try and help them raise their relevance and awareness in the Dallas-Fort Worth market. And I, I really saw the opportunity there because, you know, I, I was a sportscaster in Dallas and I really never covered FC Dallas that much. Sure. So I saw the opportunity and I've, and I've been there since uh, 2016, late December 2016. So that was a very long-winded answer. To, you know, <laughs> Tell me about you and what you do for a living. So that's me and it gets me to kind of where I am today. That's incredible. I, I love FC Dallas. I've been to a bunch of games and the fact that, you know, Lamar Hunt founded mm-hmm. the team, I believe. This is the gentleman who coined the term Super Bowl. He did. And the his Kansas City Chiefs win the trophy the last two years mm-hmm. that has his name on it. Mm-hmm. I think about his sons, Clark and Dan, and how special that must be to take home that trophy. And that's, that's such an amazing story. And one of the things that I was taking from what you were saying is you're detailing a lot of different disciplines that you were performing for these places. So you're talking about writing, you're talking mm-hmm. about photography, you're mm-hmm. talking about producing. Talk a little bit about the benefits, especially when competition is so fierce and being able to do more than one thing. And did you know that going into it or did you develop that out of necessity? I think I developed that out of necessity. And very much in local TV news, you start in a position where you're doing everything. The, right. the term back in the 90s was a one-man band. Now that can be interpreted as a bit pejorative now. And now it's more sure. of a multi-skilled journalist is, okay. is the term <laughs> that is preferred now. But I was absolutely, you know, most people go into the industry wanting to be on TV. You know, they see it and they're like, I want to be an anchor and I want to work at ESPN. Well, you got to do the grunt work before you get the glamour gig. That's what I tell all the students that I speak with or anybody who aspires to work in that industry in terms of broadcasting. You really got to do pay your dues. You really have to pay your dues. And as it turns out, you can tell a difference between those who pay their dues and those who don't. Those who pay their dues, like I did, Sports producer, sports anchor, sports reporter. Yeah. It, it, it pays off so much in the long run because even now, 20 years later, more than 20 years later, I can shoot video if I need to. I right. know how to shoot. I know how to edit. I edit video at least once or twice a week. I know how to edit sound. Writing, it's, it's, it's a big misconception that people who work in television do not write. I write right. more than I talk, you know, sure. in TV. I have to write. Nobody writes my scripts. I write my scripts myself. Yeah. And learning how to write for broadcast is very, because you write for the ear. Oh, learning how point. to write for broadcast is very different than writing for reading. Good point. You know, you have to be punchy and short and conversational versus a little bit more loquacious when you're writing for print. So yeah. all of those skills absolutely have carried me through as I've stayed in this industry in some form or fashion for more than 20 years. And and I would say perhaps the biggest skill that is helpful for anybody who wants to work in the media industry is the ability to be adaptable. 
because mm. what I do now was not even taught when I was in college. Oh, wow. And, and yeah. we know that industries will always evolve. It is those who are willing to have a growth mindset and evolve with the technology within an industry who will have staying power. Right. Social media did not exist when I graduated college in 1996. Yeah. So... Now I make my living in social media. You know, I'm, right. my, I, I've, I've gotten jobs and opportunities because of social media. I hire people to do social media. I'm learning all these different platforms and things on a daily basis or, or trying to learn them, I should say, or learn more about them. And it's so important. And, and really that ability to be adaptable that, that came with working in the, in the journalism industry and in the local news industry, right. because it's just, you have to be so fluid, so nimble, so adaptable to your circumstances and situation. You kind of have to have that hustle aspect to do whatever it takes to get the job done. Right. That has really, really paid off over the long haul. Yeah. And especially when you're, you, you're informing the public and it's also, it's a little different from a news reporter where you want it to be entertaining as well, because sometimes they're trying to yep. escape the mm -hmm. news, right? And so you want to engage your audience in ways that are relevant to them. And so when it, the way audiences engage changes, you have to be able to adapt and to deliver that. You have right? to evolve. And it's so funny. There, I had a conversation with my old boss at CBS 11, Dandy Colleen. He and I are still good friends. But we had a conversation. This was 2008, 2009, 2010, right after Twitter exploded in the sports space. And, and now, I mean, I don't watch a game without having my phone or my laptop or my iPad in front of me so that I can see what's going on on NBA Twitter or MLS Twitter or, you know, Rangers Twitter. I want to see what's going on. Yeah. And he said, Gina, this was late 2000s. Gina, I can't see anyone sitting at home watching a game on TV with a phone in front of them. <laughs> right? Right? And, and can I tell you, he yeah. remembers that moment like it was yesterday. And he's like, Gina, I cannot tell you how wrong I was. And what's interesting is I went, went on to go work for a media consulting firm where we did research on this. And we are truly a two or three screen society because we don't watch TV anymore. We listen. Exactly. And we're always looking for ways as a broadcaster to get people to look up from their phones and engage with the broadcast product. But we're a three screen society now. I'm listening to TV while I'm scrolling, shopping for shoes on my laptop and I'm checking Instagram or Twitter to see what's what's popping as it relates oh to gosh. what I'm listening to on right. broadcast television. So it's just so funny. He, he said yeah. that to me and 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 he, you know, 10 years later now, he's like, Gina. Yeah, I, I was so wrong. I admit it because now he has to program sportscasts for people who are engaging right. with a social media platform. Yeah, and I'm not laughing because he was wrong. You know, I, I think a lot of people during that time would have mm -hmm. not predicted mm -hmm. how much we are on our phones. But right. I'm laughing because I'm I'm thinking of my own experience oh, when yes. I'm watching TV. And as a marketer myself, one of the best strategies is the second screen yep. strategy. So you always say whether someone's in a venue or watching TV... What is your strategy right. being on the phone mm -hmm. at the same time? Mm -hmm. And then what you do with broadcasting, you have to be on all of those different platforms mm -hmm. at the same time in relevant ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Something that I read on your LinkedIn profile as I was doing a little research, and I love this because I've learned how to do this a little bit too, and I've noticed the importance is owning your story. So talk a little bit about what you mean by that, owning your story. And, and I have to say, I'm so glad you said that you do this too. And, and I originally developed this concept as it relates to women because yeah. I have found so many women are apologetic about mm. being ambitious. And, and, and let's be real honest. I've been a woman in the workplace for a long time. I have sat in a focus group where I've seen 
a man say something that's decisive, assertive, and direct, and I've seen sure. a woman say something that's decisive, assertive, and direct. He's a leader. She's a you right. know what. You know, I've seen sure. this happen, and and so this was born out of that experience because I've ex- had I've experienced that myself, and I've and I've seen it in focus group studies. But I really really wanted to work with women on on not being apologetic for what it is they want and owning their success, owning yeah. the story that got them to where they are. And as, and as, and as I've evolved, I've realized this is not a gender specific situation here. Right. John, you have an amazing story and there's no reason why you or AJ who's producing this should not own what it is you've accomplished, right. what you failed, quite frankly, right. what you've learned from your failure and how you can help others. Because when you own your yeah. story, your successes and your failures, because too often we just see the Instagram or Pinterest version, you know, nobody shows you the bruises and the lumps and the bumps. Too often, so many people gloss over that or they're apologetic for it. Own what you do, own yeah. your success, own your failure, and don't be afraid to share it because it can help and influence and shape so many others as well. Right. And and the, the opportunity that I have seen from a consulting standpoint is to help people understand what that means for them. Because owning uh, your story is probably different for you than it is for me. Sure. For me, it, it was really owning a lot of the mistakes that I made and, and not being apologetic about some of the success that I've had. And let's be honest, there's been a lot more mistakes and failures <laughs> than there has us, yeah. success. Absolutely. Um, but for me, that's what it has meant. For somebody who is a wildly successful entrepreneur, maybe it's owning his or her failures a little bit more because it's it's first to fail, I think is the big phrase in entrepreneurship. Right. But but you know, how did that failure lead to that moment of success where you're getting that funding and you're going your series A route or whatever it is. Right. So I just think owning your story is so important. And and I feel like too many people, again, initially it was born from a female perspective, too many people don't own that. And yeah. I just think it's so important to really celebrate it and own it in a way that's not arrogant, but confident. Absolutely. I think there's a big difference there. And I, I'm such a believer in humility. And I have not always been the most humble person. That's what's and <laughs> helped me see the importance mm-hmm. of humility. Well, when I started my own business about seven, eight months ago, and a big part of that is a is a content uh pillar, like focusing on the podcast, Mm -hmm. posting nearly every day on LinkedIn with insights and, you know, encouragement, motivation for other entrepreneurs, things like that. I was so tentative to do it at first because I didn't want to be a self-promoter. And I was like, I don't want this to be about me. I don't want to be a, oh, look what I'm doing. Look at me. And what I realized was owning my own story didn't have to be about me. It could be about everybody else. And I think that's where there's so much power. And when you're transparent about, hey, yeah, I'm I'm doing this business and it looks like it's going great, right? But on some days it's like this, or I learned this thing, or hey, I tripped and I stumbled and this happened, but I learned to go here. Those authentic content pieces are the most engaging and that's what people get the most out of, yeah. adds more value to other people. And so own your story. Now that doesn't mean you can't be confident and you could say, yes, I'm good at what I do. I love what I do. And I, you know, I want to do more of it. But at the same time, you can recognize that it's not all about you. And I think uh, community first minded, others first minded can enable you to be confident and also be humble at the same time. It, you're so right. It comes from a generous place. 
Right. Absolutely. It comes from such a generous place. And I'm so glad you shared that about, you know, you, you share your journey on social and on LinkedIn, that behind the scenes access. There's so much value with that. And that's at the end of the day, owning the true essence of what you're doing. You're trying to build something. You're trying to grow and you're trying to get there and and serving with a selfless mindset and owning it, I think, is so powerful and valuable at the same time, because I'm learning from the content, right, that you're sharing and the mistakes that you're making. I'm learning, oh, John did this or John did that. Maybe this isn't the way for me. It helped him. Maybe I can learn from that in some form or fashion. There's so much power in that. I love that. Yeah. And when we talk about your story, a big part of your story is being the only woman in one market. In one place, one city, one team, etc. What I'd love to learn a little bit about, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that experience, but also what you've learned, competition versus collaboration, because I think you've experienced both sides. Yeah, of that definitely. So, I mean, I was, you know, it's again, I'm I'm so old in doing this that I was the first woman to do sports in all these markets. And yeah. and at that time, you know, one could say, oh, you just got that job because you were a woman. And that and I, I, I believe that may have been the case. You know, there were certainly some hiring managers who were looking to take a risk on hiring a woman. It was seen sure. as a risk. And they were looking to experiment and see if it would work and, and hire a woman. At the same time, I realized if a market or a station or a newsroom had a woman doing this role, I would not even be considered for that job because at that time you could only have one. As recently as 2010, 11, 12, there were concerns about hiring a female sports producer at a particular station I was working at because there'd be two women. You know, that's (laughs) never a conversation you have with people of other genders or the other genders. So there were just definitely times when it was a real, a real challenge and it was highlighted on multiple occasions. You know, I, first time I ever walked into a locker room, it was an NBA locker room, only woman in the room. And, and this happens, this has happened multiple times over the course of my career. You go into a locker room and you're already very conscious of being a woman in the room because people are looking at you. What are you looking at? Where are you looking? Who are you looking at? What are you doing? Are you doing a job? Are you handing out phone numbers? I mean, that just happens. <laughs> what are you wearing? You know, if a woman sure. wears something that's too tight, she's called out for it. A man can wear something that's too tight and he's just heavier. You know, I mean, sure. these, are, these are the challenges that you have to work through. And I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a locker room, you know, Lady in the locker room, woman on the floor. You know, and that's just, I mean, if that doesn't just make you cringe because all the eyes turn to one person. Who's the woman in the locker room? Who's the lady on the floor? You know, just right. it's it's very awkward, but it certainly does give you a sense of confidence. I mean, I, mm. I, 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 I can go up to anyone. I mean, I have no problem going up to anyone. Hey, how you doing? Where you been? Where are you going? I mean, I just, it certainly gives you you know, a little bit of a, a little a little bit of confidence that I think some people don't have. So only woman in the locker room, only woman doing sports in so many markets. Taking that further beyond working in the media business on camera or in the sports business in a locker room, definitely I've been the only woman in a boardroom setting, a you know a, a setting in which I'm surrounded by decision makers and I've had to deal with some of that awkwardness there where I've been on the same level as my male counterparts, but I've been looked at as not that there's anything wrong with this, you know, as an assistant. So I've been asked to go get water or drinks or things, which I'm happy to do. Don't get me wrong. I'm happy to do that because I'm an hospitable person. But, you know, you definitely see the people who are presenting or having the conversations focusing on the men rather than as a speaker, I know to do this, focus equally 
on the individuals who are in the room rather than focusing right. solely on that one person. So, and that's fine. And I realize that's generally other people's problem and not mine. You know, it's not my problem because I'm, I'm confident in who I am in that regard. But all of those things. And, and at the very early stages of my career, really early stages, 10 or 15 years, I think I really did look at other women in certain roles that I was working in as competition. Yeah, I did. Sure. And, and, and that was just, and as I look back on that now that I'm, you know, approaching late forties, I look back on that now. And that's just a, such a narrow mindset to have because we're yeah. all so much better when we collaborate. But I understand where that came from because again, I was the one woman in Knoxville. Uh huh. There was not room for another woman. Another station hired a sports uh, photographer, I think, and she was a woman, and that was just such a big deal. Now there were two women in the market, but there was not another one on TV talking sport. The world was coming to an end. You know, and it just, I felt a sense of competition that if she fills in for me while I'm doing this job, you know, whatever it is, she may take my job. Because there's not enough yeah. opportunity for both of us. You can only have one. And it was a colleague of mine, Tracy Cornett. She was an anchor here in Dallas for quite some time. She's now an anchor at WSMV in Nashville. Okay. She's a news anchor. We just had a conversation one day, and it came from such a good place. And she said, Gina, at the heart of it, there's enough pie for everyone to eat. Yeah. And the analogy was... There's enough opportunity for all of us. Right. Just because you're doing something, John, just because you're podcasting doesn't mean there's nobody else can podcast in the same space. Right. I think it highlights the fact there's a market for it. <laughs> there's opportunity for all of us. You know, and, and her point was, Gina, just because you're doing sports, you don't have to be, you don't have to be elbow and her kids all played basketball. Her son Luke <laughs> actually plays for the Celtics and her daughter Nicole oh, wow. played at UCLA. And she made the analogy, you don't have to be boxing other people out or elbowing <laughs> other people out. In fact, be a teammate, help yeah. that woman, lend a hand, give them the assist instead sure. of trying to box them out. And, and, it, and that was a light bulb moment because once you are generous with your time and generous with your craft and generous with your network and your, hey, you know, this may be a better story for Shari to cover versus Gina to cover. You know, maybe this cowboy story is better for her to cover. The light bulb just lit up and, 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 and. Approaching it from a collaborative mindset, working with other women in, in male-dominated industries, for lack of a better way to put it, yeah, it, it just opened my eyes and opened my career up to so much more opportunity. And then I realized this isn't about gender here. This is just about a collaborative mindset as we go forward as professionals. Right. We need to be collaborative. And and it's funny because as a consultant, I worked in newsrooms trying to break down silos. You know, in, in my job now, I'm, I'm known as the over-communicator, trying to get people to work and yeah, trying to get Carter to work with me on certain things in another department. And, and again, just approaching things from a collaborative rather than competitive mindset. And there's room for healthy competition, of course. Of course. But that collaborative mindset just, it, it changed my life professionally, understanding that I can benefit and you can benefit when we're working together. Yeah, I, th I think, too, a couple of things that come to mind when you explain that is, number one, is from a long-term networking perspective mm -hmm. and longer-term career perspective, when you've helped somebody else, you're more likely to be helped by that Absolutely. person. If you're trying to box people out, no, this is my territory, all that. Yeah. Well, what about when you're in the... Reverse role, right? Mm -hmm. One thing I talk about uh, quite a bit is I was head of partnerships at GameStop and everybody was pitching me more than I could even read through the inbox, right? Well, I went then to uh, Production Resource Group, which is the world's largest entertainment production company, as a business development guy for their global esports vertical. 
So I went from being pitched to then pitching. And in the span of two weeks, I remember yeah. this, somebody was pitching me a deal that it wasn't right for the business. So we turned it down, but I was so thankful that I at least was respectful to this person because two weeks later, I was going to him yeah. saying, hey, I'm over <laughs> here now and I've got something for you. Right. And it was such, it opened my mind so much because I was like, wow, when I'm talking to somebody, it doesn't mean you have to do a deal you don't have to, mm -hmm. have to do. And it doesn't mean you need to spend too much time on things that aren't the priority. But just treating people fairly and that collaborative, taking a moment to understand and hear them. Think about if 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 our role switched tomorrow, mm -hmm. are you going to pick up the phone if I'm calling you mm -hmm. versus vice versa? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And mind blown there. And then just from the standpoint of, I think what goes around comes around. And, you know, when you add value to people without even looking for something coming back to you, but from a networking standpoint, people are in your network, not because they benefit you, but because you benefit mm -hmm, them. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a greater value to more people, you're benefiting more people. There's a reputation that starts to build. Mm -hmm. Right. And the next time I'm in a good place and you need something. Oh, I remember when you helped yeah. me during my time. And yeah. it's so powerful. I think people get too focused on the transactional experience or the transaction when it comes to that initial outreach or relationship. There's so much value in thinking long-term to your point there. You know, whether I, if you send me a resume and I can't get you a job right now, or I can't do something for you right now, that doesn't mean I can't help you a year down the road or two or three years right. down the road. There's, or you're pitching me something, maybe not now, but keep that door open. Think long-term, circle back in six months, a year. There could absolutely be something that has changed in our situation. And, and that applies to networking. I may not be able to help you now, but in a couple years, months, that's absolutely open. And, and, and I feel like young people, when I talk to them, they get so hung up on the, on the, I need it now, you know, right. I need don't have this. A lot of context. Yeah, don't have a lot of context. No, you're right. And they get so hung up on just this transaction did not work for me. Now I have to move on. Don't don't disregard what has happened and the value of that conversation or the value of that email or the value of that contact. It's so important. And and you're so right. What goes around comes around essentially in the business world. But it's so valuable, that network. It just, you know, and and, and you know, I feel like I've struggled during the coronavirus era that we're living in because, yeah. you know, it's been hell for an extrovert. Quite frankly, <laughs> I don't know about you, Don, but I'm an extrovert and it's been hell. And I, I love going places and meeting people and doing things. And it's been hard. Yeah. It's been hard to connect with people and, and talk and get to know new people, sure. you know, my circle, which is great, but I, I love to expand it, which is why I'm so glad to be visiting with you today. But yeah. it's been hard, hasn't it? And, and virtually it's, it's it's not the same. It's I funny thing. I don't know if I ever did a video call before COVID. Absol absolutely, you know, absolutely. It's just always yep. audio, and yep. now it's kind of funny too because there's there's almost like layers to the phone calls. Mm -hmm. It's like sometimes a voice call, I'm mm -hmm. fine. Sometimes if it's a friend, it's you know I want to go take a walk and I don't have to take notes. Let's do a phone call. Yeah. But there there is another level virtually when it's a Zoom call and you are able I think to connect on another level. But one thing, and this is a, I'm a big believer that events will come back very similarly mm -hmm. to pre-COVID, mm -hmm. post-COVID. And I think one thing COVID has told, taught us is we crave that human interaction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's great to have these Zoom calls. And I've even produced a couple, two or three virtual events. But if I got to go to another virtual event. <laughs> <laughs> You're over it. You're so over it. <laughs> it's a tough one. But an, another thing with this topic of collaboration too that I really experienced 
during COVID, you know, I was doing business development for this massive production company. And I'm trying to lead their initiatives in the esports space at the time. There's so much competition, you know, and people are, mm-hmm. you know, staking their claim here, there, even outside of esports. And what's been great to experience is a spirit of collaboration in this industry post COVID. It's a couple of reasons. One is different people reacted differently. PRG is somebody who they focus on innovation. So they do all these XR remote events and concerts inside of the game Fortnite and stuff like that. Others just waited or they pivoted more to creative. And so because people have different focuses now, instead of com- competitive, they're complementary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I think is on a more human level that is relevant to everybody even outside of the production world is that especially the production world was hit so hard. yeah. And so everybody lost their means to make a living. And so before that, it was like, I'm trying to get all I can with, this is my territory, stay over there. Yes. And now you see each other as peers rather yes. than competitors. And the story is much more, I was hit hard and you were hit hard too. Let's do something together rather than mm-hmm. nothing apart. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lesson that we should take forward. And I feel like the teams have gotten together as well. The sports teams in this market, I can't speak for other markets, but I, I get yeah. the sense they're similar to, you know, the Mavs, Stars, Rangers, Cowboys, Frisco, Rough Riders, Dallas Wings. We've never collaborated on anything before. We did things collaboratively during the COVID era. I mean, this yeah. is, it's crazy. You're exactly right there. You know, it, there is a sense of camaraderie or we're all in this together type of thing. And and you did see that. So if there is some sort of positive, I think feel like there are a few positives, more time with family and, you know, a lot of empathy and, but, but that you're so right about that. And I noticed that on the production side too. Absolutely. The production people who were decimated financially because there were no events, there were no games. Right. What do you do? What do you do? You got to get creative and do other things. And we did the same thing Mm. from a team perspective. When there was no sports going on, we were all paused. Uh, Cowboys, Mavs, Stars, Rangers, FC Dallas, The Wings, Frisco Rough Riders. We all collaborated on a couple of content pieces, which never would have happened. Right. Ever. What were some of those things? I'm curious that you bring it up. We what did, were some of those yeah, we did, we did, we did a couple of giveaways. We did a a video, and and you know, n- most people, you get this. A lot of people don't know how much work it takes to get all those stakeholders with all those different sponsors <laughs> and all those different things. A lot of that, category yes. overlap too, I'm sure. <laughs> There's right? a lot of exclusives yeah. and all those different things they have to highlight to come together to do a video. So we actually ideated it at FC Dallas and the Rangers took the ball and ran with it, but we were able to get every team in the market wow. to cooperate on this. And it was a really cool video piece that we were able to do celebrating when it is that we return return yeah. to play. And, you know, just, just the opportunity to do that after covering all those teams and seeing how uniquely different each team was, right. was, was amazing. Yeah. It was just amazing. It was fun too. It was fun to just to visit with people and talk about those things. And, you know, this was in the, in the midst of, okay, what do we do today? <laughs> you know, right. COVID. It was, it was, it was fun. Well, and I think yeah. just as much as the, the teams saying exactly what you said, what are we going to do today? The fans, yep. right? Not only missing sports, but needing that distraction mm-hmm. when everything's falling apart. There's, you know, who knows what's really happening? How long is this going to last? Mm-hmm. I lost my job. The kids have, you know, we can't even send them to school. <laughs> right, <laughs> we love our right, children, right. but, you know, uh, what uh, time apart kind of enhances those loving feelings, yes, I suppose, at yes. times. 
But yeah, that's that's uh, wonderful that you guys were able to bring that yeah, together. It was fun. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I want to move to something else here because you've, you've shared so much amazing knowledge here. And two pieces of advice that I'd love for you to share. One is, how can men help women in the space? And then I'd love to hear some of your advice for uh, younger women who are coming to the space. If it was you just coming in, what would you do differently, even though it's a completely different world than when you entered the space? It's so different. But I love your first question because I love the fact that you're even reframing the conversation of, you know, what is it that other people can do to be to be helpful and lend that assist? Yeah. I'm a big believer that the lack of that a lack of diversity at the table is bad. If it's all women at the table, it's probably not a good thing. If it's right. all men at the table, probably not a good thing either. I think you really need to have some sort of balance. And I can say absolutely that the majority, at least I think, of individuals I've worked with or consulted with have really benefited from having that diverse perspective in the room, whether it yeah. be from a marketing standpoint, a communication standpoint, a media standpoint, even just an overall branding standpoint and messaging. There's so much value in diversity of opinion. Yes. So I think it's so important and it's so easy to, to focus on, you know, keeping what is familiar to us. Of you know, course. it's so easy. It's I so easy. Everybody yeah, yeah. It's so easy for you to Call your buddies, and if you're having a focus group or you're having a brainstorming <laughs> sesh, you know, it's just easy to call your buddies, right? I love all my friends because they think like right, me yes. and they agree with me and yes. all my ideas are great. Yes, <laughs> it's so easy. And, and you know, I have a very diverse group of friends, but the majority of my friends are guys, I must say, because I work with so many guys. But but it's easy for me to call a group of girlfriends and say, okay, let's, let's workshop over this. There needs yeah. to be that diversity in perspective. So to, to specifically answer your question, I think really focusing on how can we incorporate more diverse voices into this conversation, whether it's professionally, educationally, personally, but focusing on professionally, how can we get that diverse perspective? Because it will help us. It will elevate us. It may help yeah. us recognize a blind spot that we didn't know that we had. So I think that's very, very important and being open to that voice because it's great that you're inviting someone to the table. Make sure you take that opportunity to listen and process and understand what Good it is point. they're bringing to the table there. Because you can do it and it can be a great act, but it may not be a beneficial act if there's really yeah. not substance on both parts behind it, if it's just sort of ceremonial, if you will. Yeah, I think, you know, tokenism is Tokenism, not, that's the term, yeah. That's an insult. It is, more, You it know, is. just to say, oh, we it got is. one of you. Yeah, uh-huh. Whatever you are, we, we got one of you to be here so we can check that box. Mm -hmm. And I think getting beyond that and saying, why is diversity important? Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of diversity, of course, but diversity is important, not just so you're checking a box. You want to give people representation, mm -hmm. of course. And it's also beneficial to those who are embracing diversity because the different backgrounds, as, as far what I've experienced in my career, is okay, I have an experience and I've gone towards a certain area of my career where I have an opinion and expertise on this thing. And esports is more my expertise. And so in esports, I have a specific opinion on how brands should do stuff. But that's my experience. Somebody else could have just as valid an opinion mm -hmm. that's different. They can fill in the gaps where I don't have experience. Mm -hmm. Right. And you go more broadly to broader business and things. And so yeah, I, I think it's so important that we look past, oh, I'll get in trouble if I don't have, if the picture of the board doesn't look like this or whatever, mm -hmm. but then understanding. And then also 
share a little bit about this. We need to give people the vision and then the opportunities when they're young so then they're qualified once there is that opportunity for diversity. I'll tell you, I, I created a board for the Esports Trade Association in September, and I was very purposeful with our team in being diverse. And I can't tell you how sadly difficult it was to find people of color, to find women who were qualified, who were available, who were interested to be part of what we were doing. And, you know, later you hear like, oh, your board needs to be more diverse. It's like, I need your help. You know, and, and that, that can be an answer for people too, is if you see a lack of diversity, help with that. Mm -hmm. Don't mm -hmm. just criticize it. Mm -hmm. I, I, before this experience, would have probably been much more quick to criticize a lack of diversity, and I'm not saying that's okay, right? But I now understand the, how difficult it can be in some instances. And so rather than say, oh, you need to be more diverse, say, I know a fantastic woman over here. I know this person over here. This person would be great for your organization. I'd love to make an introduction. I think that is so valuable. And and, and you speak to so many things. We are so quick to, quick to criticize, and it's very easy to do that, right? You're coming from a solutions-oriented mindset. Just yeah. providing that solution and being generous with your voice, with your time, with your expertise. This this speaks to who you are, John. I feel, but but that's so valuable. You know, I think that's such a great point. Go beyond the criticism. Go beyond the okay. It's it's a board of whatever. What can we do to change that narrative? To change right. that reality? There. How can we increase diversity on the boards or the businesses? Or how can we be recommending someone? Going back to what I said, not being transactional about the process. Thinking of someone you may have met six months ago, right? Who might not have been the right candidate for that role right then, but maybe a great candidate for this opportunity that you were talking about for the esports board, hypothetically speaking. Sure. I mean, that's so valuable. There, having that solutions-oriented mindset. When you come across issues like that, there's so much to to learn from, from just that perspective there. And it kind of goes to, you know, your second question was about what advice would you give younger women? And and it, it is so different <laughs> from, yeah. what, from what I would have told my younger self. And, and, and it's funny because we've talked a lot about gender roles here. And and I would tell a woman who, who wants to go into sports, sports media, this yeah. industry in particular, broadcast media. You know, it's easy to get sucked up being the only woman in the room because I was sucked up into that for a while. Got it. Focus on being the best professional that mm. you can be. Not so much the best woman because you're going to get wrapped up in some weird things in your head. I mean, you, you will. I mean, because <laughs> sure. that was me. That was me. I admit it. Um, focus on being the best professional you can be. Yes, your gender is going to come into play a lot, especially sure. if you're a woman on TV. They're going to call you man hands. I mean, that was my nickname for a while, <laughs> you know. I mean, they're going to call you weird things. Yeah. They're going to judge you on your looks. Sure. It's going to happen if you go into broadcast in some form or fashion. Right. They're going to judge you on your voice. If you broadcast uh, over a, just a podcast or over the radio, they're going to judge you on your written voice. If you're a writer, you're going to be judged. Yeah. You have to get ready for that. But focus on being the best professional that you can be rather than getting so wrapped up in that gender role. But prepare for the fact that there's going to be some judgment that comes along with it. Sure. Develop some Teflon coding. It's very important yeah. because I mean, if I took the man hands thing too much to heart, I'd have right. some real issues. You know, I have fun with it. You know, I mean, I was sure. called much worse too. Believe me, I was <laughs> much worse. You know, horse face, man hands. I got all the all the negative things. But you have to develop a sense of Teflon. You know, take the feedback, and and, and if it's really strong, candid, constructive feedback, take it and and and, and learn from it. 
You got to take right. the praise with the, the good with the bad, I think is the is the general sure. term. But if there's some good, strong, candid, constructive feedback that you can learn from, take it. Take the praise with a grain of salt, too, because that's a big one, too. Yeah. I, I was just going to say yeah. there's a, a quote. I don't know who to attribute it to, but it's something along the lines of don't take criticism from people who you wouldn't ask advice yes. from. Yes. Oh, that's Yeah. But also, don't just listen to the praise. Yep. Because it's easy to discount. You can get into this, like, oh, the haters, you know, haters are going to hate. Yeah. And that whole culture. It's like, not all the time, <laughs> if you only listen to the praise, there's probably a lot of things that you could get a lot better at. In fact, with this podcast, one of the things that I've enjoyed most is watching the episodes and saying, oh, I could really improve in this aspect or this aspect or this aspect. And I've got a few friends who, you know, say, oh, John, great podcast. But they'll also say, hey, I noticed when you're asking this question, you're asking it three times, three different ways when you could be more concise and give more time to the guest. Things of that nature. Isn't it hard to watch yourself? It's so hard. Is it's, it hard for yeah, you? It's, uh, it's a little rough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Believe me, I know, I know. I know I angle my head. I over nod. I used to do this weird thing with my hands, you yeah. know, and it just, you do things. It's weird when you watch yourself. You're like, oh my, it's just cringeworthy, but it, it helps you improve and it helps you get better. That's a very tactical thing on the broadcast side, but it, right. but it works though. Yeah. It works. It's necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. That's I think that's super helpful. Is there anything else? Oh, I had one more question that I wanted to ask you. So I know you've had so many iconic moments that you've covered over the years. If you could target one, maybe it's a top three. Yeah. The most iconic sports moments that you've covered, what would those be? I mean, I mean there have been so many good ones. I'm not going to lie. There have been so many good ones. I mean, I was on the parade route for the Houston Rockets, you know, in 1995 in the summer, and it was hot and you know, but that doesn't doesn't even break the top five, I don't think. And it's kind of a three-way tie. Number one was the Mavericks winning the NBA title in 2011. Right. In Miami against the Heat, against the whom they won. Yes! yes. And they lost to Miami in 2006. I mean, it was just poetic. Wow. It was yeah. so poetic. And I was pregnant at the time. And I remember standing wow. outside the locker room. And, you know, I mean, I was a Mav I am an MFFL. You know, I'm a Mavs yeah. fan. And I remember standing outside the locker room. I was the first person in line. People were nice to me. They weren't boxing me out because I was pregnant at the time. <laughs> but <laughs> what you got. Exactly. I used it. And the players had come into the locker room off the court. And I could hear them exploding in there. And it was all I could do to wow. keep from crying. Because I was like, 14-year-old Gina lived for this moment. <laughs> it just, it was amazing. It was amazing. And and Jason Terry, former Mavs guard, yeah. he was so sweet. He's like, Gina, after I went to the locker room, we did all the stuff we had to do. And I'd covered those guys for eight years. I mean, yeah. I just, I covered them. And they were friends. I felt like they were friends. Yeah. Jason Terry was so sweet. He said, I know you can't have any champagne, but here's a champagne-soaked pennant or banner. Was, whatever they're awesome. called, banner, flags. Yeah. But he didn't say pennant. He just said, here, this is champagne-soaked. Take this. That's he cool. said, I still have it. It's the it's the little triangular pennant yeah. from the Mavs locker room. Incredible. It's hanging on my office at home. It just it just warms my heart. Yeah. Another one I covered, um, University of Texas went to the Rose Bowl two straight years. First one, they played Michigan. It wasn't the national championship game. Second one, they played USC. Vince yep. Young led Texas team, played oh, USC. I remember that. Wow, yeah. And, uh, you know, this is the big misconception about okay. people working in sports media. They think that you're hanging out in the club, you know, the platinum <laughs> club, drinking and having fun. The majority of games that I've covered, I'm either way up high in the rafters in a press box or in some auxiliary press box, not even courtside, way far away, watching the game off a of TV. 
Right. Which is fine because you can see the replays and you see what's going on. It's actually a little bit easier to watch on TV, but you're in the building. But at the Rose Bowl, the national championship game when Texas played USC, we were actually in the Rose Bowl parking lot. That's where media, the overflow media were. We were in the Rose Bowl parking lot. And at about five minutes left in the game, the media relations liaison said that, okay, you guys can go out and you can shoot the end of the game. And so my photographer, CBS 11, Brett Kelly, he goes out. He's there. We're in the end zone, the Texas end zone. And I'm standing next to him. And... uh, I could have felt Vince Young's beat of sweat come off me when he ran into the end zone for that touchdown with time running out. I was right there, and I watched that play. It's one of those plays you see develop in slow motion. He just goes literally right by me. Right? Yeah. I remember it. I I feel like the sweat just just came off of me. It it was amazing being on that sideline. Wow. In Pasadena, you know, kind of USC country. Oh, yeah. You know, it wasn't, you know, where I'm they I'm a Californian. Play. Yeah, you I, get it. You I get remember it. that. It I was, was on the other side. <laughs> it was an amazing game. Yeah. It was incredible. an amazing game. And I stayed up all night that night editing. I did. I stayed up all night, did live shots for the morning show back in Dallas. Yeah. It was amazing. But the one that I never thought I'd be saying this yeah. now, 17 years later, was the 2004 Breeders' Cup at Lone Star Park. That was an experience. I grew up riding really? horses. Oh, wow. And, you know, I never really, I just, you know, horse racing's kind of hard to cover. You know, it's just yeah, kind of hard to cover. Like and and I never really was 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 knowledgeable. I, I, under, I understand horse racing, but I just, you know, we're not at, we're not at Churchill Downs or we're not at right. Santa Anita. And that's not a knock against Lone Star Park, but it's just a different environment here. Sure. And we got the Lone Star Park, to its credit, hosted the Breeders' Cup. I believe it was the 2004 Breeders' Cup. And let me tell you, being there on that day, watching those people from all over the world, I'm still getting chills thinking about it. It was just the pageantry and the magic of watching the sport of kings happen Wow. right in front of us here in our backyard and all the people who were there and going to those post-race press conferences. Yeah. It was the most amazing thing, just the diversity that was there in Grand Prairie. It, it was amazing. It was, yeah. it hasn't hosted a Breeders' Cup since, but it was just such an experience that I'd never had from a sports perspective. Yeah. It was magical. It was a magical experience. And it's hard to even say what it was like because it was just so, I was just sitting there watching people in their hats and, Mary Lou Whitney over here and a, and, a, and a Saudi king over here and just all the people. Yeah. It was amazing. And the horses and it, 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 was, it was magical. It was a magical experience. So those That's three, incredible. it was crazy. Yeah. Wow. What yeah. a blessing to it have was. to filter through all yeah. of those experiences to come up with those three. And that's, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much for being here no. with me on the DLC Drop Podcast. You shared a ton of knowledge with our audience and I know that everybody got a lot out of this. So I so appreciate your time. It was such a treat, John. Thank you. You know, this is a testament to the power of networking. We kind of met virtually on a dice wise virtual session because everything goes virtual now. And it was just, I think this is a great testament to where we are in this time being open to conversation and open to sharing and owning your story. So I really appreciate you reaching out to me to come join you this afternoon. Absolutely. Thank you for accepting. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop Podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Futuri Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review. 